Now welcome folks, I'm sure you'd like to know you're at the start of a brand new Toby Haydoke's Who's Round. I remember with Curse of Fenric, um, my feeling, I mean, I was never in fandom, but, 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 but it seemed to be that this was the sort of Doctor Who story that Doctor Who fans were crying out for, you know. Um, yeah, we, we all felt, I mean, I had been, you know, a viewer, not necessarily a rabid fan. I mean, you know, the time when I was a real fan of Doctor Who was when I was in my teens. It was, it was John Pertwee and, and, and Tom Baker. Um, they were my doctors as a viewer, and I had felt that the show suffered during the eighties for a number of reasons. Um, but it was still a great honour to work on it, and I did feel that in those last two seasons we were beginning to get the measure of it again, or and the team was beginning to get the measure of it again, and it was becoming the Doctor Who I loved again. I think you know that there had been moments of genius, but 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 suddenly we were getting it, or they were getting it more right than wrong. I, th- I think there were some really good stories in that. There were a couple of clunkers, but there were some really good stories in that last couple of years. And certainly the Fen- Fenrir, Curse of Fenrir was was quite a traditional Doctor Who story. And in- interesting though, because directed by the man who directed Paradise Towers, yeah, yeah. Nick Mallett, who yeah. was sadly. Um, no longer with d- us. D- d- and had died mm. before the DVD range to mm. which you and I have both contributed. So mm. tell me about Nick, because he's a sort of uh, an, an, an under, under understood figure, I think. I think so. I think Nick... Nick was too nice for his own good, in a way. And I think he... He accepted a lot of things he shouldn't have accepted, perhaps, in a couple of his, his, his earlier stories. Um... But I think, again, with Fenric, he got the right team who got what he was on about. And he and I hit it off immediately and became good friends. And I just really enjoyed working with him. But he wasn't, he, he wasn't someone to... He would get quite upset about things, but he, he wouldn't... He, didn't want, he never wanted to make a scene. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I I think Nick was was very underrated as a director, but I I again I don't you know I th- I think he needed the right project and I think Fenric was the right project. And so, what were your influences when doing a because it's a sort of traditional horror movie as far as Doctor mm. Who becomes a traditional horror movie. Mm. So, did, did, were were the antecedents were the, were the you know were the were the th- things that you looked to specifically. Yes, I mean, I, I mean, similar to the way you know Dudley Simpson worked, because when I came in, I was very aware that with Kef McCulloch, for instance, John quite liked the pop sensibility that Kef brought to the scores. I wasn't so interested in that approach myself. I was, I'd been brought up listening to you know, Dudley Simpson's work and then Peter Howell and Paddy Kings's work. Um, I wanted to do more of that kind of thematic programmatic material I had studied what Dudley did very closely and that's why it was a thrill to do that Dudley Faux Dudley Simpson session for the Matthews documentary because I'd studied that music when I was when I was a child ripping it to bits and finding out how he made that sound with six players um, 
And I wanted to bring that same kind of sensibility to it, and that's the horror, Hammer Horror type sensibility to it, but also using the latest technology and the way that Dudley used the, the Yamaha organ and the synthesizers, combined with a small number of musicians to create something which, which was unique in television, um, but, but he came across almost by accident. But I wanted the music to be quite experimental, but also have that sort of Hammer Horror feel to it. Um, we had absolutely no budget at the time for for live musicians, so it all had to be done on synthesizers. And we were being asked, I mean, John was saying, well, I want something in a fairly orchestral, you know, for goodness sake, you know, synthesizers can't really do that at this point. Or they could, but not if you had to, you know, do 20 minutes of music in a week. Um, so it, it was, it was, it was a, it was a tough thing to approach, but like everything else, just threw yourself into it. And I, I went to, um, my main influence, I mean, one of my main influences on it is fairly obvious. It's Stravinsky's Firebird. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Russian soldiers, it's Russian legends. Uh, let, let's find a piece of, let's find a, a, a reference point, which is, um, you know, pagan ritual. And I, I picked Stravinsky's Firebird purely as a, as a, as a tonal reference. I, I, no, no denying the reference is obvious. Um, But no, that, 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 was the way I, that was the way I pitched it in my head. And then it's just a question. You just have to lock yourself away and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and part of the problem with, with a show like Doctor Who is once you go into it, the deadline is fast approaching and it's sort of first ideas you go with all the time. You don't have that much time to, to go back over it and redo it. So I, I just used to start with scene one and just, just work through the show, scene by scene. Well, you worked uh, with the show right until... The end, because you scored the last Doctor Who story of the classic series. The last one to be made, made yeah. yeah. Not not the last one to be shown, but Ghost the last Light, one to be which made. Is, yeah. Which is also one of the, one of the nearly the last Who's Round story to come. So, <laughs> so we're going to tick go. a box, are we? So, yeah, we're gonna, we're I gonna, like ticking boxes. We're going to tick this box. So, yeah. it's, a, it's a curious... I remember, funny enough, I, it's, Ghost Light is one of those ones. I remember exactly watching it the first time. And it always seemed like it was going to be a different sort of Doctor Who story. Mm. Um, and I remember my mum saying, which is what she says all the time now about Doctor Who, is, I can't hear everything because of the music. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, what can one say? Um, the dub wasn't great, but that, that was a slightly fought production. Um, John didn't commission me to write that one until very, very late. And in fact, Kef and Dom and I were discussing, who do you think he's going to ask to do this last one? And it turned out that he'd been hoping that there would be some money left over at the end of the year to actually get, maybe not Dudley, but 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 maybe a more classical composer to, to do it with live musicians. And I was just finishing up on Fenric and uh, Ghostlight was the next one to be transmitted after Fenric and he rang me up and said would you like to do Ghost Light as well and I said <coughs> okay and then he said well uh, yeah I was hoping we'd get, um, get some real musicians on this but um, I'm afraid we haven't got the money so we've got you it's a charming way he put it um, but basically I went into it and he made it very clear that what he expected from me was something which sounded like real musicians you know, live musicians and so I went into it. I was I was then given five days to do episode one from seeing it to the dub, because it was so close to transmission. 
And so basically I went away and I sat down and all my first ideas went to tape. I just didn't have time to, to think of anything else. And I submitted it rather shamefacedly because I didn't think it was very good. And um, we did the dub and then the next day I got a call from Alan Mering saying, you know, John's seen it and, and thinks you can do better. <laughs> and then John went on holiday and basically left me with an extra ten days and he did put it back, which is why I think episode one went out before we'd finished episode three. Um, wow. Yeah, it was getting tight. But, I mean, to John's credit, he then gave me some extra time. So I then did completely rework episode one. I mean, we've just put it out on CD again and I've, I've put all the first demos on the end if you oh, want to right. hear um, because when I listen to them back now, they're not as bad as I thought they were at the time, but they didn't, they didn't really work. Is, is it different music, though? It's structurally similar, but I went for a very... What I wanted was to, to do a sort of chamber score. I imagined this Victorian, rather well-to-do Victorian family, you know, where the mother would play the piano and the daughter would play the cello and the other daughter would play the flute. You know. And so it was, it was sort of very much a Victorian chamber type feel but it just didn't work on synthesizers right. and I, I didn't have time to properly orchestrate it either because you can't if, you, if you're you have to orchestrate with synthesizers slightly differently than you would orchestrate for live musicians even if synthesizers are just playing the same instruments that the live musicians would play because the sounds are different they have different tonal ranges just by virtue of them being samples it distorts the sound it makes it, it alters the timbre and it means you have to orchestrate differently and I just didn't have time to work it through properly. And I didn't have time to then record it properly and get all the ambience right. And so it, was, it wasn't... If, if I'd been able to write it, work with an orchestrator who could then take it off my hands and orchestrate it properly and then go into the studio and do it, we could have probably done it. Um, and it would probably work very well. But there wasn't the time, there wasn't the money. So it just all went straight down. So the basic of the score became rather more synthetic. Um, it became a bit weirder. And it became rather bigger and more hammer. Um, and then, of course, we went into the dub. And because it was so tight, when we did Greatest Show, Alan Waring and I had sort of gone around the houses on some of the music, and they're very creatively. I don't think that quite works. Change that, let's change that around. We didn't have time for any of that on, on Ghost Light. And so, certainly, I think, with episode two and maybe with episode three, I think the first time Alan actually heard the finished music was in the dub and I actually hadn't given him what he thought he wanted and so in the dub we were actually sort of trying to make the music do things which I hadn't intended it to do so normally if you're you're discussing something you don't say well can we bring it up here take it down there can that bit it's scary I want to make that bit funny I want this we hadn't really had those discussions because it was so tight he'd really he was very involved with with um post-producing uh survival which had been made first all that went out later so i think he probably just purely for scheduling reasons was giving that rather more time than he was giving to ghost light so as i say when we got into the dub i mean there was a big creative argument um when we came to episode three i remember the big scene where light is dying in the hallway and alan said well it doesn't really the music doesn't really tell me that light is dying so I, I sort of looked at him and I said, yeah, I said, OK, fair enough, I appreciate that. I said, but we see light dying. Light says, I'm dying. The doctor comes in and says, light's dying. Ace comes in and says, light's dying. What the music, if the music is also saying, light's dying, 
we're rather over-egging it. What I'm trying to say in the music, it's actually quite pathetic and sad that Light's dying. <laughs> but it wasn't what Alan wanted me to say. And uh, at one point in the dub, he said, I'll just take the music out. So Light was there and the, he faded the music right out. And said, what do you think of that? It just sounds like you faded the music out. <laughs> <laughs> so there was all that sort of discussion going on. So it was... Um, and that that's why it was a bit of a a bit of a compromised dub, I think. I think we were trying... I hadn't got the music exactly right for what Alan wanted it to do. And so we were trying to fix it a bit in the dub. And the only way we could really fix it in the dub was bringing it up louder occasionally. And I was always saying, I no, take it down, it works better if it's subtle, it bubbles under. Um, but he wanted the sort of shock moments and things. And I, I don't know whether he didn't have the confidence he should have done in it because I thought it was a great piece of television hmm. um, and I still think it's you know quintessentially splendid said the independent newspaper well there you go you see I, I because it was such a bad experience or a difficult experience writing it um, I immediately felt very ill as soon as I delivered episode three you probably know this sometimes you know creatively you work on a job the adrenaline keeps you going and you know you've got a cold Mm. You know you've got flu, you know you're feeling awful, you know you're actually pretty unwell, but the ad adrenaline just keeps you going through it. And as soon as you relax at the end of it, it all piles in. And I felt like absolute hell for about a fortnight after finishing that job. And I was still feeling really ill when it was transmitting. And so I remember watching it and just all I had was bad memories of trans just you know, ridiculous all-nighters trying to finish it. Um, I can look back on it now... And I think it actually wasn't that bad. <laughs> actually quite proud of it. But it was one of those jobs at the time that, that I wasn't happy with at all. Well, and, uh, before I exceed my time, it's worth us talking about the fact that you are the sort of custodian uh, of, of, you know, a, a name that, was, that appeared at the end of many a, a Doctor Who uh, episode, mm. the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. You worked with and knew a lot of the composers that we only mm. know by name. In fact, you wrote to Tristram Carey's obituary for The Guardian. Mm -hmm. So I'll start with him. Tell us about Tristram. He was... Um, Brian rated him very highly uh, when I spoke to Brian. Yeah, I, when, I, when I got involved with the show, out of interest, I sort of started making inquiries about you know, what music tapes still survived. And, uh, you know, to my horror, I discovered that very few did. And then when... Um, the workshop shut down in 98. Um, I, uh, I was called, sorry, 96, I was called in to, to put the archive together. I mean, Brian, Paddy, Brian Hodgson, Paddy Kings and, and Peter Howell all independently called me and said, you know, Mark, you've, you've got an interest in this, do you fancy going and putting labels on tapes? Which I did. I'd just done my first feature film score, which was The Innocent Sleep. I should have been on a plane to Hollywood banging on doors. Instead, I was locked in made a veil for 18 months, putting <laughs> labels on old tapes, um, which was perhaps a bit silly, but there you go. No, I'm, I'm delighted I did it, um, you know, because it did need preserving. But because, as I say, when I got involved with the show, I became aware that so few tapes survived, I started writing to previous Doctor Who composers um, and getting in touch with them, using the fact, you know, I was a current Doctor Who composer. Yeah. Um... And basically, sort of collecting the tapes together, um, because I felt well, if people don't do it now, it's never going to get done. So I, I managed to sort of pull this sort of resource of, of, of tapes that survived, you know, 
people like Tristram were kind enough to make me that copies of, of their their recordings. But then Tristram and I became then great friends. Um, whenever you know he, he came out, he used to come and stay with us, and um, uh, you know Trist- he was a big in- again. He was one of those you know when I my my first big year watching Doctor Who as a fan, when I suddenly realised, hang on, I think this show is great. It was nineteen seventy two, and that of course we had. Um, uh, Day of the Daleks and and uh, Peladon, Dudley Simpson. Then we had uh, the Sea Devils, Malcolm Clark, which just blew me away because it was just co- completely anarchic and mad and insane, rather like Malcolm himself, as I later discovered. Um, and and Tristram's Mutant Score, and I loved all that stuff because it was nothing else on television sounded like that. So I was really fascinated by this stuff, um, and to, you know to to. To have Tristram's friendship in the last few years of his life was 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 terrific. He was you know, a big influence on me and uh, a, a very clever man and a very underrated composer actually in the history of of electronic music. Because um, he did some fantastic stuff and some, some concert work, you know. But there was a reason he he emigrated to Australia was that he was very he was he was getting very successful as a film and television composer in the UK. And it was actually distracting him from his academic work. He wanted to be a serious composer, concert composer. So he actually deliberately went to Australia and took up an academic teaching post at the University of Adelaide, purely so that people in the UK would stop badgering him to write film scores. <laughs> um, but he'd done some brilliant film scores. I mean, his first score was The Lady Killers, 1955, orchestral score. And then he did you know, Quaker Mass in the Pit. He did, he'd done some really solid stuff. Very clever guy, lovely man. But yeah, the other thing, I, when I was... When I was a teenager and I was playing in the West Kent Youth Orchestra, we had uh, summer courses where we used to spend a week rehearsing pieces and then put on a concert. And one of our summer courses, we had a visiting composer who was one Kerry Blyton. Ah! And I met Kerry Blyton when I was 15, 16, and I think he'd just done Revenge of the Sidemen. Right. And so he was visiting, and of course I, he and I immediately had a point of contact, and and I got on great with him. We did a we did a piece of of his original piece he'd written for this course called the Birds of the Air, and um, I was a flute player in that orchestra, and I don't think I played one conventional note. I I blew down the flute at the wrong end to make the sound of the wind, and I fluttered the keys to make the sound of birds' wings on the wind. I don't think I played a single note. Tristram took a very nice grand piano to bits and threw ping pong balls at it. Um, that was his. That was how he he made his music, and I absolutely adored it. And so I, I kept in touch with him. Um, so again, when it came to collecting the Carey, K- sorry, so Carey Blyton, yeah, yeah. Um, so I kept in touch with him as well. So there was all these little threads going through my life that I was meeting people, you know, and getting in touch. Did did Kerry ever tell you why he thought that the way to make the Daleks scary was to play a rather droopy saxophone? <laughs> Kerry was <laughs> Kerry was a Kerry was a miniaturist. He 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 specialised even in his sort of serious and I'm making inverted commas signs as I say serious music where Kerry's concerned. Um, he wrote very short pithy pieces. He would you know, he didn't go for big symphonies. He was very short amusing pieces. That's what I mean. Bananas in pajamas, for goodness' sake! Yeah. He wrote that. Um, so he was ideal for writing, you know, short, amusing pieces for television. Um, Dick Mills, who can be a bit outrageous, it has to be said, always says that whatever Carey was teaching at the time is what he wrote. 
So he was teaching a course for wind band. So he wrote some music for wind band for Doctor Who. Right. <laughs> um, I actually, I actually thought a lot of Carey's ideas were really good. I mean, the Silurians... Well, the, the Crumhorn class of 69, then. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But, you know, here it is. This, is. this is prehistoric creatures coming out of the earth. So he used prehistoric musical instruments. I mean, he rather discounted the fact that prehistoric musical instruments sound extraordinarily funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that actually was, trist- was, was also Carey's rather malicious sense of humour. Um, and when the Dalek one came around, he thought, well, you know... These Daleks have lost their power, so I'm not going to do electronic music. I'm going to use saxophones because they're, you know, it's a it's a jazzy kind of sound. It's hip, but it's also you know it's non-electronic. But as the Daleks slowly build their power back, he actually modulates the saxophone with the same ring modulation effect that is used on the Daleks. He took oh. it to the workshop and did that. So they all become as the music progresses, the music becomes Dalekized. So it's actually quite an interesting idea, yeah, yeah. Um, compositionally. But it was, it wasn't, it didn't always sort of sit well with uh, with fans or indeed with the producers. But, you know. but then did neither did, neither did Malcolm's music for the CD. No. Yeah. And I think that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, do you have um, do you have sort of favourite scores then that aren't yours from 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 classic Who? Yes, I mean, I mean Tristram Carey's early Dalek. Music is just superb. Um, you know, quite unlike anything else anybody else was doing at the time. Very inventive. Um, Dudley Simpson in his heyday. Um, the um, you know, Genesis of the Daleks, marvelous stuff. Um, Brain of Morbius, uh, Towns of Wang Chiang, quite brilliant scores. Jeffrey uh, Bergen. And again, brought another another flavour to it, which was very different. But but you know, he made it his own. He did some superb stuff. Um, and and I do like. I'm very fond of bits of Carey stuff. But you know, I'm a fan. You know, mm. it's it's all music. I love different approaches. And you know, and then when the Radiophonic Workshop took over, and 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 Peter Howell came in. You know, much as I loved Dudley's music, and much as I still love Dudley's music. Um, there was suddenly there was a fresh voice and it was sort of Vangelis type sound for for Doctor Who and that was very exciting as well. I don't think anyone talks about Raymond Jones's score for the Savages <laughs> enough. I like that. Well, the reason people violin. don't the reason people don't talk about that is of course we haven't seen it for years. No. I would love to see that again if if it's ever going to fall out of the cupboard, um, because I absolutely agree with you. No, it it is it is actually one of the most literate of the early scores. Um, but, you know, we had I mean, Richard Rodney Bennett, for goodness mm. sake, wrote a Doctor Who score. Sir Richard Rodney Bennett. Sir Richard Rodney Bennett, yes. The Richard Rodney, Richard Rodney Bennett. Um, and, you know, and Norman Kay's music for yeah. the first story. I mean, uh, uh, Unearthly Child, it's terrific stuff. You know, the the, the programme has always been very well served, you know, I, I, I think, by very inventive music. Well, and, you know... Fafui to Doctor Who because you alluded to the fact that you'd scored a feature film and you should have gone to Hollywood when instead <laughs> you went to Maid Vale. So, you know, man cannot survive on Doctor Who alone. Mm. So, um, you know, outside of Who, what were you doing to, to, to pay the mortgage and, and are, the, are the 
things you know was would there have been a possibility of doing more film scores if you played a different hand i think if i played a different hand there might have been yes i didn't pursue that as as strongly as i should have done um at the time why because i got involved in the radio Falling workshop thing and because i felt that was a job that needed doing um but also to be honest i've never been desperately entrepreneurial and i've never been i i am not one to go banging in doors telling people how brilliant i am I I like you know people to come to me. <laughs> um, I, I'm I'm not. There are some people in this world who are very good at banging on doors, saying, "Here, look at me." Yeah. Um, I'm not like that. I just get on with it and enjoy what I do. I would have loved to have done. I, mean, I, I did a film last year, and I hope there'll be more coming up. Well, I what I number of things I've always done on the side is the mastering work I do. So I've done you know, all the DVD Doctor Who DVD mastering. I got involved for many years with Silver Screen Records, doing hundreds of covers. Film and television themes and producing, co-producing various uh, you know albums, and for music with John Williams and for music with this and that, for Silver Screen. So that that was all going on at the same time, and uh, you know all the soundtrack albums for Doctor Who and various other things that I've produced down the years. Restoration work I've done. Uh, I say I've just done another film, and what we're doing now is of course the we did the uh, we've done a couple of radiophonic workshop concerts down the years, and we've now finally got a band together. <laughs> And so we're actually taking a Radiophonic Workshop show on the road next year and making a new album. So that's all very exciting. So like the travelling Wilburys of the of You're travelling, yes. Or yeah, the Dad's Army of British Electronica <laughs> is what we've been described as. So who is we? Um, that's myself uh, and Peter Howell. We're sort of, we sort of run it. Run it. Um, but we've also got uh, Paddy Kings and uh, Roger Lim and Dick Mills on board. And so, yes, it's the all-star Radiophonic Workshop band. It's great fun. It's enormous fun. And, and the other thing is interesting about that is all the Radiophonic Workshop guys, although people think of them as just you know, the Radiophonic Workshop, they all had their own studios. They all worked on their own. And it was interesting when we did the show at the Roundhouse a few years ago. Um, Paddy and uh, Peter sat down with their guitars and were working out this sort of weird rock jam on the Doctor Who theme we closed the show with as a bit of silliness. And after about ten minutes, they stopped and looked at one another. And said, you know what? We've never done this. You know, they they'd known one another for however many years it was. They'd never actually worked together. They worked in the same building. So it's been really fun for me getting all these guys together and you know, now writing together and arranging together and playing together. And we went up and did a couple of festivals uh, a few months ago. And I was. It's quite a complicated, quite technical show we're doing. So I was sitting in the back of the tour. We got a tour bus. I was sitting in the back of the tour bus um, with my laptop open, still frantically editing the videos we were going to be showing on the screen you know, in about two hours' time. And uh, in the back there was Dick, Paddy, and Roger, you know, telling scurrilous stories about the old days to one another. And it was just such fun. You know, that's that's why we do it. It's just brilliant to get to the the, the team that never was back on the road. You know. Well, this has been a lot of fun, but I'm conscious <laughs> that you need to be back on the road because you've got to get yourself... Well, we had a very home. nice curry earlier. It's now half eleven and here we are doing a podcast, you see. Yeah, so this is this is how it's done, guys, <laughs> listeners. So I have the two final questions, Mark. The first is because yeah. you've given your time. Uh, what is your charity that you would like oh, the listeners to donate I to? I keep on forgetting you were going to ask me this. Um, I think if you have charities... Um, there are so many charities I... I transport on a circular uh, business. I would say I lost my oldest friend to lymphoma a few years ago, so I would say Lymphoma Association. The final question is, we're 
we're three weeks past it, but this year is the uh, 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, which is why I've done this ludicrous project. Um, and thank you for being one of the first to say that you do it, and one of the last to actually do it. Uh, what is your message to the Doctor Who fans listening? As... Gosh, thank you. Um, because it's been a blast uh, enjoying this ride with you uh, for the last 50 years, and uh, less for some. Um, and just keep watching and enjoying, because I think it's, uh, it is a most extraordinary thing, Doctor Who, and it's delightful that it's still here, and just let's just keep on enjoying it together. Well, uh, I think we will. Mark S., thank you very much. Thank you. Brilliant. I think that was right for you. No, that was right for you. That was brilliant for me. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing it. Uh, my thanks to Mark, whose charity is Lymphoma Association, which is lymphomas.org.uk. That's L-Y-M-P-H-O-M-A-S, lymphomas.org.uk. By this stage in my quest, I only had, by my reckoning, what, four or five stories left. Um, two of them are consecutive, The Awakening and Frontios. And one of those I nobble off in a feature-length Who's Round with somebody who's never been interviewed about Doctor Who before until, well, the one that you can hear next week. Until then, goodbye. I put his camera away, locked up the locker and took the key into the camera department, put it on the desk and said, I'll see you at Tubby's retirement party at lunchtime. And the head of department at the time made this very nice speech to Tubby and at the end said, Tubby, I hope, I hope you don't mind. We've had a rather sudden retirement. Uh, would you mind incorporating it into your retirement party? Tubby always swore he knew nothing about this, which has to be the only time in his life he ever lied. Like, and, and he said, um, and Tubby said, no, 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 of course do I. And he stroked his moustache, as he was famous for. If you've ever seen him, you'd know he always did the military moustache number. And head of the department took a the famous brown envelope out of his inside pocket and said, Paul, we're retiring you. You are now a cameraman. And probably the only time in my life I couldn't speak. Um. I mean, brilliant. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Survivors, Series 3. London Calling. This is London Calling. Almost a year since millions of people died and everything ended. I don't know how many survived here in Britain. Maybe thousands, maybe hundreds. So I want to know... What happened to the rest of the world? Abby, I'm, I'm sorry. The truth is, I've done terrible things to stay alive. Hello, I'm Maddie Price. Abby Grant. This is Daniel Connor. Pleased to meet you. I'll let you know if the feeling's mutual. The name's Jimmy Garland. You've got some friends of mine that I'd like back. I know some people think I'm mad to keep looking for Peter. But you know what? 
I'm not just trying to save him. I'm trying to save me. Because I'm scared that if I believe Peter is dead, I'd want to die too. Some of the people left behind, they're so filled up with anger, grief, it overwhelms them. They keep it all inside. They should let bad feelings out. Big Finish. We love stories. <laughs>